0: The art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult, made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King.
1: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Donald Robinson. Donald is the author of six books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. He's a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, writer and trainer, specializing in the relationship between philosophy, psychology, and self-improvement. He's particularly well known for his work on stoic philosophy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Although we cover a lot of ground in this episode, we focus on three main topics. Firstly, what is stoicism? Secondly, how can stoicism help us deal with stress? And finally, how to approach anger from a stoic perspective.
0: The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive, no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So here's my first question for you, Donald. When you hear the words
1: self-reliance, what does that mean to you?
2: When I hear the words self-reliance, it's like music to my ears. It actually reminds me of Emerson. Um, is it Emerson that wrote that essay on self-reliance? He said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Um, And he was influenced by the Stoics, uh, uh, the Transcendentalists in general. So that's the first thing it makes me. I wonder if that was what popularized the phrase, the essay by Emerson, right? Uh, Maybe more so in American culture, but uh, I have some friends in the States who are super into the Transcendentalists and the relationship with Stoicism. I think it's a, a concept that's deeply embedded in the whole tradition of classical philosophy. Uh, particularly the Socratic tradition and especially the uh, the Stoic wing of that, to say a little bit bit about the history of it. And for the Stoics in particular, my kind of perspective on it would be that self-reliance is about learning to take responsibility first and foremost for our own value judgments, um, because that's ultimately, I think, what gives us independence from other people. Epictetus bangs on and on about many things to his students. We have these transcripts of the Roman philosopher Epictetus talking to his students, so they're very lively. He shouts at them a lot, and uh, he's quite, he calls them slaves a lot, which is deeply insulting uh, to a Roman, and especially as he was a slave himself. He was a freed slave, and, and they were uh, often noblemen, so that's a shocking thing for him to say. But he means by that, Uh, to really highlight this paradox that he thinks that someone really embracing Stoic philosophy or similar values, he points to Socrates and to Diogenes the Cynic as his role models, not to himself, but he says, These guys, these are who I'm trying to be like. Socrates was free. Diogenes the Cynic, although he was a slave, he was enslaved by pirates. He was free. But men like Alexander the Great, even though they were the most powerful men in the world, they lacked self-reliance. They were too dependent on the pursuit of wealth and glory, and that meant that they were inevitably slaves to fortune. And so Epictetus wants to drive this point home to his students, that if you put too much value on external things that aren't completely under your control, you'll inevitably end up subordinating yourself to other people, in particular, uh, in the ancient world, they were concerned about being subordinated to Tyrants, uh, like a corrupt uh, dictator or emperor, for example, and that someone uh, like Socrates, even paradoxically, though he was imprisoned and sentenced to death, was freer than any of the rest of them um, because he didn't care what they thought about him and he didn't uh, require any particular surroundings or material sub- uh, possessions in order to flourish. There you go. <laughs>
1: No, that's beautiful. I love it. I mean, we're on the same page. Look, I'll be honest. I definitely have an interest in stoicism. This is not about me. So it's about you. And we could talk to, you know, till the cows come home about how stoicism has actually influenced my own life. But I think for people coming to this for the first time and hearing this idea, this, this word stoicism and I'm sure you're gonna talk about this, but you know, obviously typically in the English language, when we think about somebody being stoic, they have no uh, sensibility, they don't have any feelings, they don't really care about anybody else, they're unemotional, and stoicism is very far from that. Give us your definition, how do you see stoicism? What is stoicism? If I was coming to this for the first time, what would you want me to hear?
2: Well, let me just amplify, first of all, as a precursor to that, what you just said, which is that we usually distinguish two words that sound the same um, by writing Stoicism, the Greek philosophy with a capital S, like it's a proper noun, and then Stoicism, the modern concept of an unemotional coping style with a lowercase s. So we could just say we're talking about the difference between capitalized Stoicism and lowercase Stoicism. And although they sound the same, they're fundamentally different things. The modern concept is loosely Derived from the ancient school of philosophy, but it 's a caricature of it, and it 's a very crude, simplistic, like one line concept. The ancient school of philosophy flourished for five hundred years like and it spread uh, throughout the ancient world, starting in Greece and then Rome, so it 's a much bigger, more complex, nuanced thing, and it has a much more sophisticated view of the emotions and i 'll amplify that by adding a kind of side note if you 'll permit me to before I proceed to give my own definition. Um, this is particularly important to modern psychological and health researchers for the following reason. There's an existing body of well-known research that uses questionnaires, such as the Liverpool Stoicism Scale, to assess lowercase stoicism. And it has consistently found that lowercase stoicism, where people are ashamed of or attempt to conceal or suppress unpleasant emotions is predictive of poorer psychological and emotional coping. So it's the opposite of self-reliance and resilience. It's actually harmful and it makes people vulnerable psychologically when they try to have a stuff up our lip in that way. And it's linked to a, a certain number of uh, mental health problems. Uh, whereas by contrast, Stoicism, the ancient Greek philosophy, is the philosophical inspiration for modern cognitive psychotherapy, which uh, the effects of which, are not without controversy, but are supported by huge volumes, hundreds and hundreds of modern scientific studies. So one of them, researchers know, is bad for your mental health, and the other psychologists uh, know is the Basis of something that's definitely good for your mental health. So these are poles apart, even though the two words sound identical on the podcast. Like we see them in writing, they look like different words, though. So you have to remember that difference. So, what I hear you cry uh, is the point of all that? What is, what is ancient Stoicism? What did they say then, if not just to be like Mr. Spock or a robot or something? And incidentally, they were keen, they repeatedly emphasized that they do not mean having a heart of stone or being like a statue. So they're very clear that they do not mean being unemotional. Marcus Aurelius, uh, the most famous Stoic and the last famous Stoic of antiquity, at the beginning of his book, Meditations, describes the Stoic ideal in reference to his teacher, Sextus of Chaeronea, a Stoic teacher. Um, He says that he was uh, free from passion, and by that he means irrational and unhealthy passions, and yet full of philastorgia, which means natural affection, or just love, you could say, right? So he does not mean that Stoics lack love. In fact, he says the opposite. He says his Stoic ideal, uh, the Stoics he most admires, are people that are full of some kind of philanthropic love, uh, rational love brotherly love, platonic love. You could use these kind of terms to try and describe it. They love life. They love reason. They love the universe. And also I would remind your listeners of something that's hidden, a mystery in broad daylight, like something that's hidden right under our noses. When we talk about stoic philosophy, the clue is in the name philosophy, which means a lover of wisdom. So Stoics take that literally. They know what it means because they spoke Greek. All of them, Marcus Aurelius, even though he was a Roman, spoke Greek and, and wrote in Greek fluently, exceptionally well, in fact. And so they know very clearly that philosophy literally means to love wisdom. And so therefore, someone who is indifferent or cold-hearted towards wisdom, by definition, could not be a philosopher. You have to have philosorgia a love of wisdom, a love of mankind, and the love of life as a whole. And the Stoics think the other emotions, like uh, the unhealthy emotions, anger in particular, get in the way of that anger, especially because it's the opposite of this fundamental, affective state that they want uh, us to cultivate. And so the Stoics think by re- learning to reason philosophically and clearing the way and f- we can flourish as human beings and uh, live in a resilient, self-reliant and yet, nevertheless, loving and affectionate way. And, you know, we, the Stoics, believe that the ideal man would have many friendships. Socrates was surrounded by close friends that were intensely loyal to him uh, because that was integral to his very character. Everything we know about his biography tells us he was a man that passionately loved wisdom in the pursuit of virtue, and he loved his friends very dearly right, and dedicated his life to trying to help them. So this is not a robot like uh, these are real flesh and blood and passionate human beings, but that passion is directed consistently in accord with reason rather than being in conflict with reason. So I would say stoicism is a philosophy. um, Therefore, we can now say the central slogan of philosophy is that uh, the goal of life is to live in accord with and to love arity or virtue like, it's to love virtue. And that virtue is the only true good. And By virtue, the Stoics mean a kind of moral wisdom, which is the basis for all of the good personality traits that we admire in other people. So this uh, virtue is the only true good is, is perhaps the best one line summary of the central doctrine of Stoicism.
1: What I'm interested to hear from you, Donald, is just how did they come to this? Because at that moment in time, historically, there were a lot of philosophies at least under the banner of philosophy, that they could have chosen to take. Why this one in particular?
2: Why did they begin to embrace this philosophy? Gosh, it's a, that's a long and complex and multifaceted story. Really, the, it, it mainly goes back to Socrates. Look, um, Socrates is credited with really being the main instigator of this tradition of philosophy. And the Stoics see themselves as a Socratic sect. Um, We're told that and we can see it very clearly in Epictetus. He goes on and on and on about Socrates. It's clearly his role model. He tells his students to emulate Socrates in their own lives. Clearly, they think of what they're doing as Socratic philosophy and So it was really Socrates that started this and the Stoics really latched on to and built upon this aspect of his philosophy and other schools that, that followed kind of maybe neglected it a little bit. So You could say that in a society where uh, people have a stronger sense of their own mortality, where life is more uncertain um, and unpredictable, where there's more, and especially something that people sometimes say, is that when societies come into contact with other civilizations, often uh, changes happen, they begin to question their values. For our traditional morality, our customs. These people that we're now trading with or at war with, they, they view the world completely differently. Maybe they, maybe they've got a point. Maybe they're right and we're wrong. Like these people in Egypt, they all worship, they all worship gods with animal heads. Like you know, maybe they're right. You know, what's, what's real anymore? So with uh, with increased trade and expansion of territories, particularly Alexander the Great's. You know, huge pff, seismic impact on the ancient world. You can see stoicism in particular as being kind of uh, the, kind of thrown into the spotlight in the wake of uh, Alexander's conquests and the cosmopolitan. Plutarch like, actually argues that uh, Alexander set the stage for the cosmopolitan ethical tradition coming to the forefront in Stoicism. So the Stoics, one of their fundamental beliefs is that all human beings are fundamentally akin with each other, but they're all brothers and sisters in terms of their shared possession of reason and their capacity for wisdom and virtue, which was a radical idea in the ancient world, because people had been kind of tribalistic. They thought, well, our race is better than your race. You know, men are superior to women, free men are superior to slaves. Some races, barbarian, so called races, are inherently slavish, certain philosophers believed, such as Aristotle, even. And the, the Stoics questioned that. They were much more egalitarian and cosmopolitan. And so there were these cultural influences and changes that paved the way for Stoicism. And some people likewise, say that Alexander the Great, and the Stoics then paved the way for a, a world
1: religion like Christianity to develop. So I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to say that there's been a resurgence of Stoicism as a philosophy, especially in our modern era. That would be worthwhile to, to kind of unpack. Why is that? Why do you think in the last, what would you say in the last several years, definitely there's been a resurgence? Why now?
2: I, I first became involved with Stoicism um, just under 25 years ago and began writing and giving talks about it. So I think this makes me sound old and that's rather unfair, I, I feel. But I, it, stoicism, I vividly remember stoicism not being a thing when I started to get into it. And, and people saying, why are you interested in this really obscure philosophy that no one gives a, you know, a, a, a toss about? Um, and it wasn't long though that before book, more books started to appear on the subject, and it became more popular. Now, where did when did that begin? Okay, so the the kind of the the very first instigation of that, arguably, actually happened in the mid 1950s, with the cognitive revolution in psychotherapy, because psychotherapists began to quote the Stoics, particularly a guy called Albert Ellis in New York, is one of the I, I, pioneers of. Uh, cognitive therapy, he used to quote Epictetus all the time to all of his students and all of his clients. And he quoted the Encaridion of Epictetus, the most famous quote that says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And that happens to perfectly encapsulate what we call today the cognitive theory of emotion, which is a central theoretical premise of cognitive therapy, the leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. So it took a while But Casellis' work was kind of peripheral for a while. He had many uh, opponents and then Aaron Beck came along and and his work became more popular in the late 1960s, 1970s. But it wasn't actually until maybe the late 1980s, 1990s that cognitive therapy really started to go more mainstream and large volumes of evidence started to accumulate for it. So it was a bit of a delayed reaction, right? So Ellis started talking about this in the 50s, and then by about the kind of late 80s, 90s, uh, it became a dominant thing in psychotherapy. And and shortly after that, in the kind of mid to late 90s, it had really started to affect the culture in some countries, but not others. So particularly in the United Kingdom, like we have a strong evidence-based medical tradition and psychotherapy tradition. And the, the UK really embraced evidence-based practice in psychotherapy. Other countries have not done that, right? but the UK did it wholesale and really embraced CBT. And that had an effect gradually, bit by bit, one person at a time, like over the space of uh, a few decades. That affected people, like ordinary people that were having psychotherapy were getting these ideas, hearing about epictetus And then that began to filter into the media. And then articles in newspapers and magazines started to talk more about CBT, And this happened in America and some other countries as well. And gradually the culture changed and it affected, I think, the, the slowly, belatedly, affected the, the culture of life coaching, corporate training, and self-improvement literature. So now it would be kind of weird, actually, to see people writing self-help books or doing coaching. They, they do it. But in, in the way that people did back in the 1960s or 1970s, like without at least kind of acknowledging all of the research evidence that supports the cognitive model of emotion. Like, like we now know more about how emotions work and how people can be benefited. And, and so there was a, I, a sea change in the culture of mental health. And, and stoicism was dragged, kicking and screaming. Now it was dragged back into the, the limelight because of that. And people started to see these connections. I wrote a book about the connection. I was amazed that no one else had written about it seemed obvious to me. So that book kind of wrote itself, as people say, The Philosophy of CBT. I wrote that book in 2009 or something. It came out the following year. And then uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. Another thing we realized is there's a Stoic diaspora. So there are Stoics. all over. I met a guy yesterday uh, in, uh, I'm in Athens, a hairdresser. Uh, he came and spoke to me uh, and told me he was interested in Stoicism. So there are people, uh, millions of people, all over the world who have read, in particular, the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, because it's one of the most popular self-help and spiritual classics of all time. But you know what? Until recently, they didn't know each other. They didn't get together and say, hey, have you read Marcus Aurelius? I've read Marcus Aurelius too. Let's talk about like, how we can put that into it. But nobody ever did that. It was completely unheard of. It just didn't happen. And then this thing happened called the internet, and in particular, social media then began to get bigger and bigger, and particularly, especially Facebook, I would say, allowed the Stoic diaspora scattered throughout the world to coalesce into online communities. And the largest one is a big one on Reddit, and I have a big group on Facebook that's got over 80,000 members in it, and there are lots of other online communities now. So these Stoics all started to talk to each other for the first time about the stuff that we're reading, and more and more books come out, and the whole thing started to build momentum and that's what you're talking about is why suddenly now it's everywhere and it's become what we call in quotes a thing
1: so you mentioned marcus aurelius's book meditations and one of the things that i noted in when reading that book the first time i can't remember it was a very long time ago but the thing that struck me was that the things he was talking about the struggles are the exact same struggles that we have to contend with today and i think that really is one of the reasons why it really speaks to people and resonates because they go, Oh, hold on a second. What he's talking about is no different to the things that I'm dealing with in my modern, in modern life. And actually in that sense, the human actor and the way that we, the situations and the emotions and the thoughts that we deal with hasn't changed much throughout history.
2: That's true. Uh, let me add two other things to that. Marcus, Aurelius really wrote that book in the middle of one of the biggest pandemics in European history called The Antonine Plague, and he wrote that book right in the middle of it. And so in some regards, to a limited extent maybe, but in some regards, you could read that book as a coping manual for uh, psychological strategies to deal with living through a pandemic. And that's what uh, he was describing. Incidentally, one of the other major plagues or pandemics in the ancient world was the plague of Athens through which Socrates famously lived. So our two, two of the main figures in our tradition um, lived through, and, and their philosophies in some sense can be seen as a reflection of the fact that they had to endure uh, these huge pandemics, far, far worse actually than the, the one that we're currently facing, believe it or not. And the, the Antonine Plague killed in uh, the Mediterranean region, uh, it's estimated about 5 million people. Uh, they said they were taking bodies out of... Uh, the city of Rome by the cartload like, each day, and uh, it caused absolute chaos. But the other weird thing about that is, that it's just as a little side note again, it's shocking, how much we, it's shocking how much we do not learn from history. Hegel said that the one thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Oh, my goodness. You know, If you read Herodotus on the Athenian Plague, if you read about the history of the Antonine Plague, there are many things that happen every time there's a pandemic. And yet, this time round, nobody expected them to happen. So, you know, there's this kind of typical pattern that these things follow, and they're not always the same. But geez, you know, like we could have seen a lot of the things that are currently happening coming because it's not the first time there's been a pandemic, and uh, similar things happen each time. So, students of history can potentially learn quite a lot by looking at these events. Now, to say respond to something else that you said, this book speaks to people, and there's something very odd about that. It's something very, very strange about the way that the meditation speaks to people, because it's written in a number of ways in an unusual style. It's an odd text for several reasons. And one of the odd things about it is that it's artfully vague. You could read that book. Let me pick, for example, one of the most widely quoted passages from the meditations, which is the beginning of the main part of the book, the opening Passage of the kind of practical part of the book. Meditations 2.1 says every morning when you awaken, tell yourself that you're going to meet meddlesome people, treacherous people, deceitful people, and so on and so forth. Then he talks about how to cope with it. And people read that and they think, that sounds just like my mother-in-law. Or it sounds like that guy that sits next to me at work. Or it sounds like, you know, and they project themselves into the text. And they kind of imagine how that would relate to their own lives immediately. And they do that because Marcus, curiously, doesn't give any hint who he's talking about. He leaves it artfully vague in such a way that any modern writer would tell you allows the reader to project themselves into the narrative that he's telling. And that's an odd decision. and it, it also, I think, once you get deep into reading the meditations, you really start to forget, in many ways, that you're listening to the words of a Roman emperor. Like, you, it sounds kind of mundane. I think we naturally imagine, who are these meddlesome people? It's probably someone that shot changed them in a shop. That would be annoying, or something like that. But then you have to pinch yourself and think, hang on a minute, he was facing a civil war. Like he, the, the Roman Empire prior to that had been uh, subject to a huge barbarian invasion across the northern frontier. Marcus had to k- take command of the largest army ever massed in a, a Roman frontier, 140,000 men under his command, because uh, a Roman client state, the Quadi, had broken their peace treaty with him and invaded uh, the northern provinces, crossed the Alps, and entered Italy to lay siege to a Roman city. And that's not on our radar when we're reading every morning when you wake up, tell yourself that people are going to betray you. But it stands to reason that he perhaps was thinking about these world historic betrayals that he was facing as Roman emperor that had seismic consequences for the shape of Western civilization. And yet we read it and think, yeah, it's annoying when people bump into you in the street and don't say sorry and stuff like that, you know? Um, we naturally relate it to our own lives and to relatively mundane things. So it's strange that one of the most powerful men in history should write this book that's so artfully vague that we tend to inevitably forget that he's referring to world historic events, about which we, we, we know a fair amount.
1: Which really speaks to what you mentioned right in the beginning. You said about the Stoics looking at us as being a coll- collective as human beings that we all connected and seeing each other as human beings. So it kind of makes sense in a way that he would write it from that perspective, like looking at the collective human tragedy unfold and how we actually can deal with it.
2: Yeah, he's writing in such a way that it would appeal to to other people. And the here is a paradox, and I don't know the answer to this, like stylistically, in certain regards, I would say this looks like it's been written so that other people can benefit from it. And that's the, the evidence in a sense is, what is it, the proof, the pudding's in the eating. People do benefit from this book. like, And, and so they are, we might ask ourselves, hasn't it been written precisely so that they respond to it in the way that they do? That would be, the, in a sense, it's the simplest explanation. He did it on purpose, right? However, I agree with the scholarly consensus that the textual evidence in the meditations suggests that it wasn't intended for publication. Um, and there are a number of odd things, like he... He just the way he talks about other Romans does not seem like something he would have intended for publication during or shortly after his lifetime. I mean, I guess he could have embargoed it and said, don't publish this for another hundred years or something. But um, for example, he 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 kind of the Romans would get really offended if you did if you damned someone's memory, like if you didn't mention someone, um, it would be like sort of ostracizing them or something like that. And uh Marcus talks at great length in book one of the meditations about the qualities he most admires in his adoptive father, the preceding emperor, Antoninus Pius. But he doesn't even mention Hadrian, his adoptive grandfather, which would have shocked the Romans. They would have immediately went, hang on a minute, how come you don't admire anything at all about Hadrian? so that, that would have been shocking, and a number of the other remarks he makes would have shocked Romans uh, if they'd uh, read them. He also at one point seems to be critical of his own generals. Um, so there's a couple of things that make it look more like it was written for personal consumption rather than for publication. So, uh, But nevertheless, like you say, when you're reading it, you think this seems like it's been, you know, it's a, this is a wonderful piece of literature that speaks to everybody, and surely that's intentional but that's a that's a riddle to which i don't have the answer which of those is true
1: so let's switch gears and let's talk about some practical applications of stoicism starting with stress and you know we're in a situation right now globally with the with covid and I'm, there are a lot of people stressed out and probably a lot of people you know and i know who are what would the stoic approach be to managing stress
2: the Stoics has lots of things. The first book I wrote on Stoicism, I listed all the psychological techniques, and I went back recently and counted it because I didn't number them. And I identified in that book 18 separate psychological strategies that we find in the Stoic texts. And each one of those even takes multiple forms, right? So they did a bunch of things. We'd have to pick out a few key examples. Now, the easiest way to begin is by building on something I just mentioned a few moments ago, which is the, the concept... I used to teach psychological techniques. It was the main thing that I did for many years. I trained psychotherapists. One of the things I noticed is that therapists imagine that psychological techniques involve visualizing things or breathing differently or stuff like that. And I thought they had a peculiar, peculiarly narrow set of assumptions about what constitutes a psychological technique because cognitive techniques often involve just thinking about things from a different perspective. And often those are the most powerful techniques. Um, so sometimes we explain techniques and people go, yeah, but how do you actually do it? And you go, that is the technique. You think about it in this way. Many of the stoic techniques are cognitive strategies they are for. And perhaps the best way to explain them is they're kind of perspective shifting techniques. And those are among the most powerful. So one of them is a technique that we call cognitive distancing in modern psychology. And there's a large body of research on it that shows that it may be one of the most potent and one of the most general purpose uh, techniques and one that was largely neglected until about 15, 20 years ago, but now is very, very prominent in psychotherapy research. And the Stoics, like in many areas, were way ahead of the time. Like, they, they very clearly had this concept. So uh, when Epictetus says it's not things upset us, but our opinions about them, the, the Stoics repeat this idea in many forms. Marcus Aurelius basically quotes that, or, or paraphrases it, from Epictetus. And he comes up with a number of different versions of it. And Marcus also repeatedly tells himself to separate his thoughts from external events. So the cognitive distancing we're referring to is distancing your thoughts from the external events to which they refer. And the opposite of that, we tend to call fusion. It's when people confuse or blend their own opinions with the events they're describing. So I'll give you an example. Someone loses their job and they think, this is a catastrophe, I've lost my job. Um, and the way we phrase that in the English language is like saying it, something's big or small or black or white or heavy or light. It's like we're describing a physical property. It's a catastrophe. It just, that's just how it is. Right, like, But really, that doesn't describe a property of the event itself. It's an expression of our emotional reaction to it. It's more subjective, it's more arbitrary, and other people may not see it that way. And even more shockingly, I might not see it that way a week from now when I look back on it, I think about it like that. You know, I look back at the table that I'm sitting at here, a year from now I'm still going to look back at it and think it's brown, it's made of wood, right? But I might not look back on the fact that I lost my job and still consider it an awful catastrophe a year from now. You know, That's a, a, a transient expression of my current emotional reaction to it. But I confuse it with external properties. We all do that. It's part of human nature. And the Stoics think that's a big mistake. Like They think it's the dumbest move that humankind make and they, they want to radically question it. And almost everything they do is focused on getting us as Marcus puts it, to separate, to prise apart our value judgments from these external things and distance one from the other, and um, to take more responsibility for the value judgments. Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy, used to explain it as follows. He said, imagine you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, but you've had them on for such a long time that you just kind of assume that everything is pink. That dude over there, he's pink. Like, that building is pink. My trousers are pink. It's just pink, right? And then someone comes along and steals your glasses and they put on a set of blue glasses and you think, hang on a minute, everything looks blue now. That did there's blue. And like, and then you suddenly realize, well, maybe the things aren't blue. It's just, I'm looking through blue lenses at it. And the same way, you know, rather than thinking, this is a catastrophe that I've lost my job. Cognitive distancing would be when you think, no, I'm looking at it through a catastrophic lens and someone else might look at it as an opportunity. And just to highlight that, as a therapist over the years, uh, it surprises me how often I've met people who have literally lost their jobs and viewed it as a catastrophe and then weeks or months later have come to view it as, uh, you know, one of the uh, turning points in their life because they maybe went on to start business in many cases or, you know, went on to, to find a better job. Relationship breakups are a good example. Everyone thinks that that's a catastrophe when it happens, a divorce our relationship breaking up. If you think of uh, when you were a teenager and you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you broke up, it maybe seemed like a, a catastrophe. But 20 years later, you look back on it, you maybe had many other partners in between. It really just seems like part of the, the process of, of, of growing up and, and going through life. So with, in retrospect, it doesn't seem catastrophic at all. It just seems like a, a, a natural, most of a setback. So the Stoics want us to pay constant attention They call this prosoké, stoic mindfulness, you could call it. Uh, Constant attention to the way that we use strong value judgments and to notice that we're projecting these values. We're looking through colored lenses and changing the colored lenses that we look through and not to confuse these value judgments with external realities. Nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as Hamlet says. So Epictetus says it's like, imagine, like philosophers went around barefoot, there's a famous... Play about Socrates called barefoot in Athens, for example. And Epictetus says to his students, "You know, when you're walking around barefoot, you're really careful not to tread in any sharp stones, right?" He said, "But shouldn't you be more concerned about the way that you, you where you tread with your mind, like what you're doing with your mind and where you invest your values, in case you you, you harm your mind by investing too much value in external things?" He goes, "You should be as mindful." Um, of how you use your value judgments as you are of of where you place your feet if you're walking barefoot around Athens. And uh, the Stoics call this prosoke. It means literally paying attention to how you use your mind. In modern Greece, I'm in Athens at the moment, we see this word written everywhere because it's uh, like caution or warning or attention. So if you get on the underground, the metro system where it might say mind the gap on, on some trains in English, the Greeks have prosoké, and if someone has an Alsatian, like they might have a sign outside the house with a picture of the dog, and underneath it would say prosoke, like beware of the dog. Right? So warning signs have exactly the same word that the ancient Stoics used to describe this kind of alertness or mindfulness to the way that we use our value judgments. So this, one of the central practices would be this continual self-awareness and taking responsibility for our value judgments.
1: Yeah, that's definitely useful. I can see how that could be applied. Let's move on to another thing that people struggle with is anger. And that definitely is something that I see in my own work, because as a martial arts teacher, that's something I have to work with people on all the time. What is your perspective on that? And how would we approach it from a stoic philosophical standpoint?
2: I want to talk to you about it. I've got. I've got some questions for you about that, you know? <laughs> like, I want to pick your brains about that. Sure because people love nothing better than to argue with me about this because I hold a radical position. I think, generally speaking, anger is a pointless emotion. And that is the Stoic and Socratic position. The Stoics believe there's nothing really that anger can do that reason can't do better. And to help explain that, they said, look, we often confuse different emotions, but the the Stoics had a cognitive theory of emotion. So they said all of our emotions have uh, underlying beliefs and values, and that's what makes anger different from fear, or, you know, fear different from kindness, for example. It's the beliefs and attitudes that underlie the the feelings. Um, And that's supported, actually, by a whole body of modern research on emotion. The cognitive appraisal research on emotion shows that if you give people uh, uh, drugs that are neurostimulants, and you tell them this drug is gonna make you really excited, then they'll report feeling excited and behave excited. If you tell them it makes people angry, then they'll report feeling angry and and behave angrily. Um, If you tell them it makes people scared, then that's what they do. So the physiological basis of emotion seems incomplete, inadequate, to explain the subjective experience. People also have to have beliefs expectations about what the pounding heart means. Is my heart pounding because I'm excited or angry, like, or because I'm scared? Like, it's the thinking, it's not just how you feel, it's how you think that, that constitutes emotion. And so the Stoics said, well, what constitutes anger then? And they believed, to, this is a simplification, but they believed it's essentially about revenge. Like, we, we feel angry when we want to hurt people. We want to get them back because we think that they've done something that violates our rules. And maybe they've threatened us or someone we love or our interests, um, and therefore we want to punish them or, or harm them in response for that. And so the Stoics engage in really quite an elaborate following, Socrates, quite an elaborate set of philosophical arguments to, to question um, whether it makes sense to try and harm other people, whether it wouldn't be better um, to try uh, ultimately to Improve them. They say the wise man ultimately wants to convert his enemies into friends, not just to destroy or punish or hurt his enemies. So, Stoic criminal justice, incidentally, um, prioritizes reforming offenders rather than uh, retributive uh, punishment. Um, and so, I'm interested in, in this idea. Some people have said to me, but sometimes you have to get angry to defend yourself. You have to be angry. And I think, I don't know if that's true, because it seems to me, actually, the angrier you get, some, at least in some cases, the less efficient you would be at even defending yourself. Um, If someone's attacking you with a knife, you just completely lose your temper. Wouldn't you probably drop your guard and stuff and expose yourself to more risk? And would you be trying to punch them in the nose rather than trying to get the knife out of their hand? You know, maybe you should be trying to fight more tactically and, and surely trying to hurt the person should what does it shouldn't maybe be your number one priority maybe trying to disarm or immobilize them or escape from them should be your number one priority if you were a really a, an efficient fighter or a martial artist but and and also i know that some fighters try to make their opponents angry in order to tire them out or get them to make mistakes but I, i'm no expert on this so I, I wanted to know what your opinion is
1: well i think my opinion is quite similar to yours um you know not to take up too much of the time but definitely I would say, and the way that I coach, and it doesn't make me very popular, I'll say that, I don't believe that you need to get angry in order to defend yourself. And as you noted, I think it's a, it's a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding that we know that when people are quote unquote angry, or at least coming from that expression, that it has a knockoff effect, and it definitely affects your your cognitive functioning in a way that's not going to be appropriate in dealing with that situation. One of those, as you've been mentioning the stoic approach is that you're going to lose all ability to be rational. And so your ability to make conscious productive thoughts and decisions in that moment become clouded because you have now purely come into it from this, what you are calling anger but really, what it is is an interpretation of how you're feeling, and it's in that interpretation where people get themselves into trouble.
2: I would add to that. You know, I think there are many ways. I'm one day. I'm I'm looking forward to in the future having a, a, a much bigger debate around anger. So I think the time has come, like anger's uh, a more serious pandemic than the, Marcus Aurelius said. There's someone asked him what if, in the meditations he wrote about the Antonine plague. He said, "Yeah, it's pretty bad, but you know what's even worse." Like, what's going on between people's ears? And I thought, whoa, that seems kind of harsh. That's a radical thing to say. I agree with him now. You know, I think the epidemic of hatred, uh, outrage is far more dangerous, like particularly in the United States at the moment, than the actual pandemic itself. And I take the pandemic very seriously. I have a strong interest in uh, evidence-based public health. I think generally people have underestimated the severity uh, of the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But nevertheless, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the most serious threat uh, to society is this epidemic of anger and hatred, Why, that's going to go on indefinitely, that's going to continue long after the, the virus has uh, been brought under control. Um, so I look forward to that. But there, and there are many arguments. So I look forward to, to, to taking that on. but there, And there are many arguments that we inherit from the Stoics and Socrates. But one that I think is very useful. The, the Stoics said that anger is temporary madness. Now, that's a wonderfully concise way of putting something that we could talk about all day. There are many, many, many modern research studies that show many specific regards in which anger biases cognition. Not only cognition, but also our focus of attention, like our scope of attention. Anger makes us stupid. makes us as thick as two short planks, right? There's no question about that. It makes us overgeneralize. It makes us leap prematurely to conclusions. It makes us engage in false dichotomies. Uh, It makes us prone to pressures. It makes us, and this may interest you, there's research that shows that people who who are angry have a natural tendency to underestimate risk. Why? So again, would that make them, if they're inaccurately appraising risk, again, they're fighting someone with a knife, maybe they drop their guard. Why? Because they're not really like, accurately appraising the, the risk that they're facing. Um, you know, then maybe they, you know, they'd be focusing more on disarming their opponent or something if they had accurately identified the risks in front of them. So anger makes people stupid and it causes them to make serious mistakes. Um, in a pandemic, also, people who get angry about it are probably going to underestimate the, the risk of infection or harm to other people, because that's what angry people do. So, you know, what I think one of many arguments against anger, as you alluded to, is this idea that it's temporary madness, or, uh, you know, inherently a form of stupidity. And we could document the many different regards in which anger has been proven um, to lead to irrational thinking and poor problem solving.
1: So what would you say, just give us one idea on a tool that somebody could use if they find themselves in that state? What, what would one stoic approach would be to dealing with it? Well,
2: I'll mention in passing that Marcus Aurelius actually has a passage in the meditations. I believe it's book 11, passage 18. That's how much of a nerd I am. I know it by heart. And he lists 10 distinct cognitive strategies that's 10 i taught psychotherapists and if i asked a room full of therapists hey guys quickly tell me 10 different cognitive strategies for coping with anger you know i'll give you a prize. yeah the winner gets a coconut or something like that right they wouldn't be able to do it like i think they really struggled to name more than about three or four i would say based on my experience he names 10 like and he keeps going back to subsets of them repeatedly through the meditation because he knows them by heart so first of all, the Stoics have a lot of strategies. Seneca, we still have a, an entire book by Seneca surviving today called On Anger. So one of the strategies that Marcus doesn't mention in that list is mentioned by Seneca and mentioned by Epictetus. And it's a more general Stoic strategy, but it also goes all the way back to the Pythagoreans and the Platonists way before the Stoics. And they even had a name for it. They called it Pedartan, which is uh, learning when you're angry to take a time out when it's possible to do so. I wouldn't be in a fight or something, maybe, but if you're angry, now they, now they say, this isn't very PC, but they, their main example is uh, punishing a slave. So today it might be reprimanding a child or something like that would be a good analogy. And they say you should never do it in anger, like, so say one of your slaves or servants breaks your favorite cup, like, you know, you should take, if you're furious about that, you should, that the very fact that you're angry should tell you that you need to go away wait until you've calmed down and then think about what you're going to say or, or do about it in response. We do that in anger management today and also in assertiveness training and things like that. You know, Sometimes you have to teach, teach people how to act in the moment, but the Stoics realize, look, if your thinking is, is impaired and you have the option to do so, you're better off sleeping on it right, or at least taking your time out, waiting until you calm down you're thinking more clearly and then right, thinking what would be a, a more helpful, more constructive to say. There's an amazing example of that from Marcus Aurelius's life in the the, uh, Historia Romana of uh, Cassius Dio, a Roman senator, one of our Roman histories. And this is really quite astounding. During the civil war um, against Marcus Aurelius, the news of a, a, a rival emperor being appointed in Egypt reached Rome, and the Senate freaked out and panicked. And they declared him a public enemy and seized his assets, which seemed like a great idea at the time, like, but it escalated the problem dramatically. And then Rome's Romans citizens freaked out because they thought he's, he's going to invade Rome now and sack the city. So everyone was freaking out. Then it would have taken two or three weeks, maybe, for the news to reach Marcus, who was in the middle of fighting a war. And at that point, I think we would have been in Serbia, as we call it today. Uh, and when Marcus got the news, he did something that is clearly motivated by historic principles and would have shocked the legionaries to which he delivered this speech. He stood up in front of them and gave a speech in which he explicitly enacted a pardon towards everyone involved in the civil war against him. Now, that's a shocking thing to do, and it's the opposite of what the Senate did. The Senate called for the guy to be executed. Like Marcus said, no, I'm going to pardon everybody. He said, I'm going to assume that this must have been some kind of mistake on their part. Nevertheless, we're going to mobilize. Like we're going to form a, uh, reform the, the army and we're going to march across the empire against them. But I'm, I'm going to send, I'm going to officially pardon them. And then, you know, we'll see how they respond to that. And by doing that, ironically, he ended the civil war with virtually zero bloodshed. Um, the empire was on the verge of being torn apart. And the guys, uh, the officers under Avidius Cassius, at this point, thought, we don't really think it's worth fighting this war, There's only, we're all pardoned, and, and plus we actually believe he means it, because this is Marcus Aurelius, like he doesn't lie. he's always as good as his word. And this is a big deal that they believed him saying this remarkable thing. And uh, so they thought, let's not even bother having this. Well, there's only one person now that wants to have this civil war, and and that's Avidius Cassius. So they ambushed him and cut his head off and delivered it to Marcus Aurelius in a bag. and he was as good as his words and pardoned everybody else that was uh, apart from people a couple of people they say that were involved in war crimes, he, he pardoned everybody and the, the, the armies went back to their, their garrisons. Then after Marcus died, his son Commodus, who was a bad emperor, reversed that decision by hunted down the families of Avidius Cassius across the empire and had them burned alive as traitors. I like, did the opposite of what his father had done because he wanted revenge. But Marcus decided against revenge and instead forgave this guy by doing this crazy paradoxical thing, actually ended the civil war without a battle having to be fought.
1: Mm. So using that as a springboard to come to the end, Donald, what words of wisdom do you want to leave us with? What would you want people to really focus on at this moment in time and where we find ourselves?
2: I We haven't mentioned one of the main stoic techniques, so it's a good place to end. We have this thing in the stoic literature called the view from above that everyone loves. Everyone loves the view from above. And when I listed the stoic techniques in my first book and I compared them to CBT techniques, this was one that I couldn't really find an obvious parallel to in modern psychotherapy. Now, I'll add the caveat that there'll be some psychotherapy nerds out there that'll find some obscure 1970s textbook that, you know, but I, I have found a couple of things that I could compare it to, but it's not a common Technique in modern psychotherapy. And that surprised me because this technique um, is actually uh, of great interest, of growing interest now, to some cognitive psychologists who so are doing research on it. And it's the sort of technique that looks like it obviously has potential to modern psychologists. So it's quite striking that cognitive therapists weren't really doing something like this. The Stoics thought it was important. And a view from above involves broadening your perspective in terms of space and time and picturing events as if seen from high above, like the gods looking down from Olympus. You've seen for people my age, you've seen Clash of the Titans or whatever. And you have Zeus, I guess, like with the humans are like chess pieces and a board or something like that. The view from above is like looking down like the gods from Olympus or more metaphysically or cosmologically, just trying to kind of imagine the, the, the vastness of space and time and the brevity of our, our life within it. And that, that seems like a kind of mystical technique, but it's actually rooted in a very simple observation, which I mentioned earlier. In modern psychology, we know that most people can think of several things at once. So when you're driving your car, you can be listening to the radio, talking to someone in the back seat and also thinking about what you can have for dinner tonight. So we can, as I like to put it, walk and chew gum. By we're capable of doing more than one thing at once, except when, as you mentioned earlier, we become stressed and then our scope of attention becomes more rigid, less under voluntary control and more narrow in scope. And it's like we're putting threats, perceived threats, under a magnifying glass when we get emotional. And that, that's quite toxic. And now we know that we can train people to expand the scope of awareness and that tends to dilute our, the intensity of our emotional reaction. So the Stoics were way ahead of their time again. They were onto something. So I encourage people always to look at the bigger picture. Like if they're facing a, a, a catastrophe, like think how they're going to look back on it a month, a week, you know, a year, a decade from now. So they expand the perspective chronologically. Um, if somebody comes up to you and, and tells you that they think you're an effing idiot, like just think that there are you know. Uh, 5,999,000,000 other people in the world that don't share that opinion. Right? So when you place events within this broader context, you can still talk about the fact that they happened in exactly the same way, but their significance seems reduced. And the weird irony about that is their significance is reduced because we are viewing them more accurately. We're adding information rather than distorting or taking anything away. The Stoics would say that the totality is reality. And and when we ignore the bigger picture, we are deceiving ourselves by committing a lie of omission. In a sense, we're taking things kind of out of context. And we do that all the time because it's part and parcel of human nature. The Stoics want us to gain wisdom by making a conscious effort to mitigate that, do the opposite and broaden our perspective in space and time so that we become wiser. Uh, and achieve a sense of equanimity instead of rage or or anxiety.
0: To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z dot com.